Oh, Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that You would do Your work in us through Your Word. Make us sensitive to the leading of Your Spirit and convict us in areas where we need to be convicted. Lord, You know each of our hearts. You know that our hearts would lead us astray, but Your Word brings us back. Your Word brings us back to the center. It is a spiritual checkup for us. So Lord, examine our hearts today and show us what must change in order that we may grow in our walk with You for the glory of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 25. If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it is page 20. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 34 today, Genesis chapter 25. You know, over the last couple of weeks, our nation has seen just an abundance of natural disasters. And it started with Hurricane Harvey a couple weeks ago, hitting the city of Houston and hitting the city of Houston really hard. That was headline news for an entire week. And now today, uh, we know that Hurricane Irma is hitting, um, hitting Florida. And it's looking like the strongest, perhaps the most destructive hurricane to come out of the Gulf of Mexico in 20 or more years. It's looking like a nasty, nasty storm. But we've got a different problem up here in the Pacific Northwest, don't we? I mean, if you've uh, been outside during the past week, you know that we have forest fires all over the place up here. We've got so many trees burning that on Tuesday morning, I believe it was, cars were just covered with ash. Uh, I, I was watching one weatherman talk about how he's been in the Seattle area for 20 plus years, and he, this is the worst he's ever seen. And so in one area of the country, we have too much water, too much rain, and in another area, we don't have enough. Meanwhile, there's also been an earth, a major earthquake this week off of the coast of Mexico. And as people across the globe uh, are, are watching this take place, uh, it, it's not just North America, it's also taking place in India. They've had huge floods there. Uh, 1,200 people were killed by floods in southern Asia. And as people are watching all of this take place, it's, it's no surprise that as it's going on, people are asking the age-old question, where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God? What's He doing? Scripture clearly affirms for us that God is sovereign over the weather. He either causes it or He allows it. And maybe somebody will find that troubling. That God is sovereign over all these natural disasters, over all these, these storms and everything. Personally, I would find it a lot more troubling if God were not sovereign over the weather. When you think about what takes place in the book of Revelation and people are running for the hills and, and just wishing that the hills would bury them, would, would kill them, you've got to be thinking, you know, that was, this is really offensive. I can't believe that any God would do this. And I think a lot of people have that attitude about the storms today. God can't be sovereign over the weather if it's doing this. Well, He is. He is sovereign over the weather. People are, are wondering maybe if, 
if God is just trying to speak through all these natural disasters. And I would say that because He is sovereign over all things, including the weather, He does either cause or allow or, or use storms, afflictions, natural disasters, calamity, catastrophe to send a clear message to us. A message that's really kind of a reminder. A reminder that life is short and that we are not in control. Your days are numbered, and you're not in control of when that number expires. We like to pretend that we are. We like to pretend that we're in control of the daily events of our lives, but really we're not. Catastrophe can strike at any moment, and it's foolish to pretend that it can't. In Luke's Gospel account, there was a time when Jesus addressed uh, the message that God sends through catastrophes and calamities. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1-5, to we read this. There were some present at that very time, there were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Verse 3, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there are 18 people who were going about their everyday business one day. They weren't doing anything that was terribly uh, more wrong than every, you know, what everybody else was doing. They were just going about their everyday business when this large tower falls on them, crushing them, killing them instantly. And people were wondering, did they receive the wrath of God because they did something worse than everybody else? And maybe this tower falling was caused by an earthquake. Maybe it was caused by a strong wind. We don't know what it was caused by, but whatever the case, it was a calamity. It was a, it was a catastrophe. It was what the insurance industry would call an act of God. And Jesus points out that there are really two lessons to be learned from natural disasters and calamities like this one. Number one, it's wrong to think that those who are affected were worse sinners than everybody else. That isn't the case. And number two, natural disasters and catastrophes and calamities are a reminder that not a single one of us is in control of when our time is up. And so, the time to repent, the time to get right with God, the time to turn away from sin and toward the Lord Jesus Christ is always right now. Life is short, play hard. That was kind of a slogan from, from yesteryear. But I'd propose that there's a more biblical slogan that, uh, that natural disasters and catastrophes remind us of. Life is short, get right with God. Life is short, get right with God. What are you living your life for? What, what's the purpose of your life? What's the goal of your life? What are you trying to achieve with your life? If catastrophe and natural disasters... And all kinds of afflictions don't cause you to reflect on questions like these. They should. It should cause you to think about these types of things. 
And it's both amazing and and scary to see the types of things that people spend their lives pursuing. To see the types of things that people waste their lives on. Let me ask you this. What would you risk? What would you pay for one moment of extreme, extreme fleshly carnal pleasure? And I only ask that because you see people risk all they have all the time for things that are meaningless, for things that are just fleeting here today and gone tomorrow. For example, in, in, in my line of work, you know, I, I, I get brokenhearted when I hear about pastors and, and church leaders who get caught having an affair. They risk everything. They risk their reputation. They risk their job. They risk their family. For what? For, for one moment of pleasure? That's worth ruining your reputation for the rest of your life? The cost is always far more than what you could possibly gain. The truth is that for every one of us, no matter what your line of work is, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, you spend your life, you spend your days pursuing something. And there's something that's at the top of the chain. There's something that's at the top of your proverbial totem pole that you are pursuing above everything else in life. What is it? What is it? What are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? What do you hope to achieve? And when all is said and done, and you have to stand before the throne of God and give an account for your life, What will you have to show for it? As we continue our study of Genesis today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 to 34. And the central point of our lesson today is that living for worldly pleasure will rob us of heavenly treasure. Living for worldly pleasure will rob us, will deprive us of heavenly treasure. Now, we left off in in, uh, Genesis 25 after having been introduced to Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and we saw that they were an illustration of God's sovereignty over election. In their story, we see that God is the one who decides who will be a beneficiary of the covenant promises. And we're going to learn today, uh, we'll learn a little bit about what kind of person Jacob, um, Jacob is. But really, this is more focused on the type of person Esau is. It's really focused on on him. Esau was the older of the twins. He was the one who who came out first. And in all honesty, when you think about what we know about Esau, Esau was probably a lot more likable than Jacob was. But But Esau's life is a picture of a man who wasted his life pursuing and valuing all the wrong things. His life was a picture of a man who traded heaven's treasure for worldly, carnal, fleeting pleasure. So let's start with verse 27. Chapter 25, verse 27 says this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. That's quite a contrast. 
And you'll often find that in, in siblings. Even in twins, you'll find that they have very different interests and, and completely different personalities often. So Jacob is, is just, he's a homebody. He, he wasn't adventurous at all. He didn't take a lot of risks. He was a mama's boy. And if you asked him what he liked to do for fun, apparently his answer would have been to tell you that he likes to just dwell in tents. What does that even mean? Who, who dwells in tents for fun, for a pastime? You know, you could go to, to, the, to the mall, to the Alderwood Mall today, and you could survey a thousand people asking them what they like to do for fun, and not one person will say, well, I, I just like to dwell in tents. And that's not to be confused with camping, by the way. They lived in tents, so this is not to be confused with camping. No, if you want to go camping, Jacob is not your man. Esau is your man. He was the man of the field. Esau was the one who loved the hunt. He loved going out there and getting what he wanted. He was rugged. He was manly. He was the kind of guy you'd smell coming home from a hunt before you could see him coming home. He was completely opposite the type of person that Jacob was. And Esau wasn't just any old hunter. He was skilled, Moses tells us. He was skilled at what he did. So here's, here's Jacob. He's a homebody. Esau is a man of the field. And that immediately indicates to us that Esau was the type of person who did not like to be told what to do. He didn't like to be restrained or confined by rules. He wanted to make his own rules. Out in the field, nobody could tell him what to do. Because he was just out on his own. He was in charge of the decisions that he made. He was in charge of his own life. And we're going to see that Isaac and Rebekah had their favorites. Look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, just so you guys know, and I hate to break it to my kids, there are no perfect parents. I, I know, you, you, you would have thought, right? There are no perfect parents, and, and that's maybe for some that's a, a hard reality to accept, but it's true. And even Isaac and Rebekah were not an exception to that rule. They had their favorites as the children grew up, which every parent knows is a major no-no. Rebekah favored Jacob. Like I said, Jacob was a mama's boy. And Isaac favored Esau. And we learn that the reason that Isaac liked Esau more, it's because he liked eating the stuff that Esau went out and caught. Now, maybe that's because... Isaac had problems with his eyesight, which we'll learn later on. Or maybe it's just because Isaac himself, we're never given any kind of indication that Isaac himself was, was a hunter. But he liked game. He liked meat. He didn't need to hunt, though, because his son was all they needed. He was the skilled hunter in the family. And all this information is given to us for the sake of setting the stage for a major, major turning point in the lives of all four of these characters. And all four of these characters are major characters in the narrative. But before we continue, I think it's worth noting that not a single one of these four characters is characterized by godly or noble virtue. As, as you look at them, at what we see in this passage, you wouldn't point to one of them and say, that person is, is just really godly and I want to follow their example. 
Not one of them. These are all deeply, deeply flawed people. Deeply sinful people. Every single one of them. But that's part of the point. We don't want to overlook that because that is part of the point. See, God doesn't choose. He doesn't elect based on merit. He doesn't save only people who are good enough to deserve it. He doesn't save based on who is good. He doesn't save based on who's godly. He doesn't save based on who's noble. If that were the case, none of these four people would be chosen. These people are all fallen sinners whose only hope is the grace of God. And so in that sense, they're no different than you and me. Because that's our only hope too. The grace of God. Let's continue looking at verses 29 to 34. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now this just kind of seems like sort of a funny story, right? Silly story, you know, what's the big deal? Is is it really that big of a deal? Is this, how is this a turning point? I mean, it almost seems like Moses just included this to, to kill some time and to fill up some space, you know, before going on to some bigger and more important things in their lives. And yet, this is a pivotal moment in their lives. This silly story is, is crucial to understanding their whole story. It's enormously significant. We, we aren't told, by the way, how much Jacob and Esau knew about God's declaration that we saw back in chapter 25, verse 23. God had told Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And you got to wonder, we don't know exactly how old they are at this point, you know, this, this episode, this, this passage that we're looking at today, but you've got to wonder, how often did God's declaration, God's choosing, come up as they were growing up? My guess is that it came up quite a bit, fairly often. I, I can just imagine Jacob saying to Esau, hey, Esau, I'll, I'll trade you the top bunk for your birthright. And he'd say, no way, that, that birthright is mine. Uh, he... he wasn't quite ready to give it up, maybe, but Jacob knew Esau. He knew Esau's heart. He saw what Esau loved, what Esau valued. He watched Esau. He studied Esau. He plotted against Esau. And that's Jacob. That's just the way Jacob operates. Jacob is a swindler. Jacob is a cheat. Jacob is something of a low life. He wasn't beyond scheming. He wasn't beyond manipulating. He wasn't beyond using crazy deceptive techniques and means for getting the things that he wanted. And you know what he wanted? The birthright. Jacob wanted that birthright. 
Now, we don't really have anything in our day and age that would compare to what we see here. We don't have anything that compares to what a birthright entailed in the ancient world. But the Bible does tell us a little bit about what all it entailed. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17 says that the older uh, older son is to receive a double portion of the inheritance. So he's to receive twice as much of the estate of the parents as the younger siblings. So there is a, uh, a material physical, maybe financial aspect to it. But in Jacob and Esau's case, there was also a spiritual aspect to it because they would not only receive the blessings of the covenant that God had made with their grandfather Abraham, they would also be the one through whom the Messiah would come. The Messiah would come through that person's line. And Jacob wanted the birthright. He wanted the birthright. And, and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a commendable thing, to want the birthright. It was good for him to desire it because it is a good and holy thing. So there's nothing wrong with desiring it. But the way that he goes about obtaining it is wrong. He wants a good thing, goes about it the wrong way. How often have we done that? We've all probably done it. The way he goes about it was sinful. It was deceptive. You'll remember that Abraham had this this tendency kind of throughout his life to take matters into his own hands in times when he should have just been waiting on the Lord for what the Lord had promised to do. So he, for example, when there's a famine, instead of trusting in God to provide for him, he tries to provide for himself and he takes Sarah down to Egypt and it ends up in a mess. And this is something that we see Abraham doing throughout his life, taking matters into his own hands rather than waiting for the Lord to do what the Lord had promised to do. And here we see that less than five verses after being introduced to Jacob, we see that Jacob has the same inclination, the same tendency to take matters into his own hands that his grandfather Abraham had. See, God had already decided who would inherit the birthright. He'd already decided that the birthright would end up with Jacob, the younger of the two twins. Jacob didn't need to do anything except wait. Jacob didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He didn't need to scheme to steal it from his brother. He didn't need to wait until his brother was starving to manipulate him for it. And I suspect that all along, Jacob knew Because he knew Esau, he knew that Esau didn't really care about the birthright. Esau was a man who loved carnal, fleshly pleasure. He lived in the moment. He lived for what satisfied him the most in that very moment. He wasn't the kind of guy who planned ahead. He wasn't the type of guy who thought deeply about the way that life can be so fragile and so fleeting that our time is limited and so we must make the most of it. He didn't even go there with his thinking. Esau was controlled by the pleasures of the flesh. Esau was not just controlled by the pleasures of the flesh. He was enslaved by the pleasures of the flesh. 
And his life, his story, is a warning to us, to every single one of us, about the foolishness and about the wickedness of pursuing, of chasing worldly pleasure over heavenly treasure. The birthright, make no mistake about it, the birthright included heavenly treasure. But Esau was so much like people in our day and age. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? He, he was so much like people in our day and age. He loved what he could get in the here and now. He lived for what gave him the most pleasure in the moment. He lived in the moment, for the moment, and not a moment beyond. Instant gratification is what drove his decision-making process. And how different are people in our day and age? I mean, every one of us, to some degree, is probably driven by, or at least tempted by, the desire for immediate, instant gratification. And so when Esau comes back from hunting with empty hands and an empty stomach, he trades the, the blessing of the birthright for the only thing that would satisfy him in the moment. Food. Food. And, and, and not even great food. There's no meat in the meal. There's some beans in the meal. There's some bread that Jacob gives him. That's what's going to bring, bring him the most satisfaction in the moment. And so that is what Esau values the most. Was he going to die? Nope. He wasn't going to die. He came back hungry, sure. He was probably expecting to get something big, some good game, and he was expecting to have a feast when he came home. But in, you know, this time, sometimes when you go out, whether it's fishing or hunting or whatever, sometimes you come back with nothing. And so he comes back with nothing. He hasn't been out there for 40 days and 40 nights having not eaten. So he was maybe very hungry. Maybe he was famished. He was exhausted. But he wasn't going to die. He wasn't going to die. At least not yet. I mean, we're all going to die if the Lord doesn't come back first. But in the moment, he's not going to die. He's not dying. The question is, what was going to give him the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction in the moment? And here we see the curse and the consequence of living for the sake of pursuing fleshly carnal desires. He trades the blessing of the birthright for a moment of fleeting satisfaction for his flesh. And Jacob is living up to his name, isn't he? His name literally means the one who grabs the heel or heel grabber, which basically indicates he's a cheater. He's a cheater. He's a swindler. And here we see him living up to his name. He swindles his brother out of his brother's most valuable treasure, which, by the way, is not to be confused with his most valued treasure. That's the sad part. That's the, that's the foolishness of this, that, that this whole time it wasn't Esau's most valued treasure, but it was his most valuable treasure. What was his most valued treasure? Well, it changed from one moment to the next. His most valuable treasure would be whatever would give his flesh the greatest pleasure. And in our day and age, not only is this typical, 
It's standard. It's, it's kind of expected. The, the greatest virtue that people in our culture pursue is happiness in the moment, regardless of what the consequences down the road might be, regardless of what the consequences of eternity in eternity might be. Personal happiness is the greatest virtue as far as our culture is concerned. And by the way, personal happiness is not a virtue. But that is how backwards our culture is. Esau's philosophy in life boiled down to eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we may die. He pursued happiness. He pursued satisfaction for his flesh at all costs. And it was this attitude, it was this philosophy that made him feel like in this moment it was better to pursue pleasure over purity. It was this attitude that allowed him to pursue self-indulgence rather than self-denial. Let's never forget that Jesus clearly stated that if somebody wants to follow Him, it starts with what? Denying yourself. Denying yourself. Because holiness is more important than happiness. Holiness will give you a deeper happiness. And if you're pursuing fleshly happiness at the cost of holiness, you're missing the boat. Purity is more important than pleasure. Self-indulgent, uh, being self-indulgent may be more satisfying than being self-denying, but only in the moment. And so we have to understand that pursuing fleshly pleasure in the moment prevents us pr- from pursuing rightly. It prevents us from pursuing Christ. It prevents us from following Christ. It prevents us from being counted among His disciples. And as I think about this principle, I think about the fact that statistics for Christians doing things like stealing, lusting, divorcing, having affairs, looking at sexually explicit websites, it mirrors the world. We're no different. If you look at the statistics, we're no different from the world. But that is not the high calling that has been placed on us. And it reveals that we, even we, as beneficiaries of God's grace, are so prone to pursue worldly treasure over heavenly pleasure. Let me ask you something. Let's say that I had a check for $10 billion. I don't, but let's just pretend. And I offered this to you. If you would go a certain amount of time, let's just say one week, or maybe a month, or maybe a year, without acting on a certain fleshly impulse that you struggle with, and we all have our struggles. So every single one of us, it's going to be something different for each of us, but we all have them. But I'm offering you $10 billion if you can go a certain amount of time without acting on that desire. Now, for some of you, that might be not acting on a harsh temper. For some of you, it might be lusting after someone, uh, you know, somebody of the the same sex or somebody of the opposite sex. And I'm going to offer you $10 billion if you can just go this amount of time without acting on whatever that impulse is. And let's just assume for the sake of this illustration that as soon as you violated the terms and conditions of this agreement, I would know. I would be completely aware 
I would, I would be aware of your thoughts. I'd be aware of your desires. I'd be aware of what you were doing. But how hard would you try to avoid acting on that sinful impulse, knowing that if you don't, not only are you set for life, but your kids are set for life. Your grandkids are set for life. Your grandkids' grandkids are set for life. If you can just go a week, a month, whatever, without acting on this impulse, how hard would you try to avoid acting on it? I can guarantee that if you took somebody with a fleshly impulse that caused them to curse or to lust or to pursue drunkenness or whatever, they would put forth every single effort they could to ensure that they got that $10 billion. And yet, that $10 billion could be gone tomorrow. Catastrophe could strike tomorrow and you could lose it. And you wouldn't even know it. You're putting forth every effort for something that you are guaranteed to lose. What is $10 billion in comparison to the blessing of eternal salvation? Of heavenly treasure. Treasure that you cannot lose. Treasure that moth and rust will not destroy. Why is it that every single one of us would find it easier to be motivated, we'd find it more motivating to avoid a certain action for $10 billion, for something that we're guaranteed to lose, than we do for eternal salvation. Listen very closely to what Paul says to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a steep, steep warning. But what do all these things have in common? Every, every one of these things that Paul's listed out, what do they have in common? They are all fleshly impulses that are completely worthless, that are fleeting and have no value in comparison to the riches of knowing Christ Jesus. And yet, even Christians are tempted to pursue these things over Christ. But Paul's saying these are the types of things that will keep you out of the kingdom. In other words, there are eternal consequences to choosing, to pursuing these things over pursuing Christ. Oh, but our flesh can find so much pleasure in these things in the moment. I know. I'm a human being. I I know that they can. I know how strong that temptation is. But friends, these things are just the bait on the hook that's going to snag and steal your soul. Paul's reminding us of the principle that we see in Esau. That pursuing and living for worldly treasure will deprive us of heavenly treasure. And Paul knew what the people in Corinth, what the Christians in Corinth had been saved from. He knew that some of the things that they had been saved from were still tempting to those Christians. And so he follows it up by saying this. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice he doesn't say, Such are some of you. He says, Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were a slave to fleshly impulses, to sinful impulses, but you were saved out of that type of thinking. You were rescued from that type of living. You were saved from that type of existence. The question that all of this forces us to ask ourselves is, are you trading the blessings of God for something less than God's blessings? Are you trading the blessings of God for something else? Esau was governed by, Esau was enslaved to the sinful, impulsive desires of the flesh. And so his life is a warning against that type of complete foolishness. Esau's life is a warning against that type of impulsive decision-making, that type of impulsive thinking and living that pursues whatever seems the most pleasurable to our flesh in the moment. His story reminds us that there is a high cost and an eternal consequence to the person who says, I I have to do this because this is just who I am. No, it's not. Not if you are in Christ. His life reminds us that there are no excuses. There are no biological excuses. There are no physiological excuses. There are no psychological excuses. None of them excuse sin. Imagine if we allowed biology to excuse sin. Somebody could say, well, you know, I'm, I've got a, a biological predisposition toward anger. And so my disposition is predisposed toward murdering somebody. And so if I decide to murder somebody... That's just who I am. Do you hear how ridiculous that is? Do you realize what kind of society we would have if we allowed biology to justify anything and everything? We must deal with our sin. We must deal it, deal with it. We must mortify it. By the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, we must put it to death. Esau didn't. Esau was held captive. He was enslaved to the desires of his flesh. His carnal and and fleshly desires dictated his thoughts, his actions, his speech. But listen to what Paul says to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The principle here is really simple. It's impossible to be led toward habitual sin, a lifestyle of sin, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not lead a person to sin. And so if a person is being led to sin, it's a crystal clear indication that the Holy Spirit is not leading them. That is a scary reality. Think about the consequences of that. That is a scary reality. So the question is, what is determining 
your decision-making process? What is leading your actions? What leads your decision-making type of thinking? The flesh or the Spirit? Because there's no third option. It's either the flesh or the Spirit. Because when you stand before the Lord someday and give an account for your life, and every single one of us will, there will be no excuses for being led by the flesh and failing to wage an all-out war on the sin in your life, especially if you engage in sin knowing it to be an offense to God. Just like the New Testament interprets the deeper significance of Jacob being chosen over Esau, so too we need to understand Uh, that the New Testament does offer commentary on this passage on Esau as well. It tells us a lot about this very small but tragic passage, and we must understand it in light of the way that the New Testament interprets it. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17, which say this, "...see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God." And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejecting, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Friends, if we take this as seriously as we should, we see that this very short passage about Esau forfeiting, and not just forfeiting his birthright, but despising his birthright, is a warning to us. A warning that those who forsake the pursuit of God's blessing and instead pursue the desires of the flesh are in danger of forever forfeiting the privilege of grace. His life, Esau's life, is a warning to those who pursue carnal bliss over heavenly blessing. There was nobody outside of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, Esau's family, there was nobody outside of their family in Esau's day and age who had the type of spiritual advantages that Esau had. Think about this. He, he knew from firsthand testimony from his father, he knew about the promises that God had made to Abraham. His, his own father, Isaac, while Isaac was far from perfect, was nevertheless a godly man. And his mother, far from perfect, was nevertheless a godly woman. And so Esau undoubtedly heard, probably over and over, multiple times, he heard the stories of how God provided a sacrificial lamb in his father's place on Mount Moriah. And yet he not only rejects his birthright, he despises his birthright. And that is exactly what we do when we choose to pursue pleasure, carnal pleasure over heavenly treasure. We despise God's offer of salvation. We despise the blessing and we despise the riches that God has given us in Christ Jesus. And for those who will still not turn from their sin, there are at least three things that you are forfeiting. First of all, if you are pursuing fleshly satisfaction over heavenly blessings, you're turning down the benefits of Christ's death on behalf of his people, on behalf of all who will repent and believe in Christ. Esau forfeited it too. 
And to do so, what he does here is unholy, it's unrighteous, it's wicked. Now you might say, though, that Esau deserves a little bit of a break because while he undoubtedly not only knew of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, but he also undoubtedly had heard this promise of of a Redeemer that was to come that we trace all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Nevertheless, those promises were somewhat vague it was somewhere in the future, and it was, would have been very difficult to understand what exactly was going to happen. So you might say maybe Esau deserves just a, just a little bit of a break here. But even if that were the case, that excuse doesn't work for us, does it? Because Christ isn't some vague, mysterious character who is coming someday. No, Christ has come. And people have been proclaiming the gospel. The people have been proclaiming his life, death, and resurrection for 2,000 years now. The fact that you've heard the good news of salvation, you've heard the good news of the gospel, you've learned the benefits of being in Christ, that leaves you with no excuse and an even harsher judgment than Esau was deserving of. Do you really want to pass on the benefit of having Christ as your substitute and bearing God's wrath against your sin? Secondly, you might say that Esau had a little bit of an excuse because he didn't have a Bible. The Bible didn't start to be collected. You know, the Old Testament didn't start to be collected until about 500 years later when Moses started compiling it. We don't have that excuse today, do we? No, we have more Bibles in our country. We have more Bibles than we even know what to do with. We have multiple translations that range from fairly difficult to read to very easy to read. We have paraphrases of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you know somebody who does. And if you don't know somebody who does, come and see me. I'll give you a Bible. We have, in our culture, an abundance of Bibles. And not only that, but we have books and we have commentaries that are immensely helpful in guiding and aiding our understanding of the Scriptures. Listen, if you're choosing to pursue fleshly impulses, you are taking a pass on the joy and the sanctifying work that we gain from reading God's Word and abiding in His commands. When a person rejects God's Word, when they refuse to, reje- to, to, to abide in God's Word, they're not only rejecting God's Word, they are rejecting God Himself as well. No civilization in world history has had anywhere near, not even a fraction, of the number of copies of God's Holy Word as we have. Do you despise that incredible privilege The fact that we have the Bible at our disposal at any moment of the day as a guide for living, as a way to know what does and doesn't please God, and yet many have chosen to reject it, will have earned them an even harsher judgment than Esau would have been deserving of. Third, you might say that Esau deserves a little little bit of a break because he never got to actually hear a sermon Understanding that a sermon is an exposition, an explanation, and an application of Scripture. Because there were no Bibles in Esau's day, he never got to hear the Word of God expounded the way that we do today. So it seems that maybe Esau deserves a little bit of a break because he never heard any gospel preaching. But even if that were the case, 
that excuse wouldn't fly with this generation. Now I realize that there is way more bad, unbiblical preaching out there than there is good preaching. Believe me, if anybody knows it, I know it. But there is nevertheless an abundance of excellent, doctrinally sound, good teaching out there. And I would say it's not even a stretch to imagine that you know between radio and internet, you could listen to doctrinally sound preaching 24 hours a day for the rest of your life and you wouldn't even come close to reaching the end of it. It is out there. There is a ton of it out there. But if you're passing on the blessing of pursuing Christ and making every reasonable effort toward growing in the Christian life, you are despising the privilege of receiving good preaching and exhortation toward godly living through regular biblical exposition. And just real briefly, I could even add a fourth. Church. There were no churches in Esau's day and age. Does he deserve a break? Not really. Do we? Because there are churches on every corner in America. every, Every major city, every small town has a church. No excuses. Esau despised his birthright. He despised the offer of God's blessing. He was a slave to carnal, sinful impulses. He was unholy. He was wicked. He was godless. And he was without excuse for having sought and having pursued carnal pleasure over heavenly treasure. And so today, I I urge you, I, I beg you, not to follow Esau's example. Instead, I implore you to count the cost of following Christ. And when you do, I think you'll see that the cost of following Him is worth it. And as you consider the cost of following Him, consider the the cost of not following Him. You'll see that in the long run, there is greater treasure, greater pleasure, greater joy to be gained from pursuing Christ because it's a pleasure that cannot be taken from you. You can't lose it. Moth and rust won't take it from you or destroy it or defile it. And this isn't just a plea for you to be good. I don't care if you, if you are, are a good person. Not to say that we shouldn't you know, abide by the laws and be decent people, but I'm not asking for behavior modification here. I'm not just asking you to, to change your behavior for the sake of changing your behavior. No, this is a plea for you to see that all the things in this life, all the things in this world are rubbish. They are worthless garbage in comparison to the riches in Christ Jesus. We need more than better behavior. We need a perfect, sinless Savior. We need to repent and believe in Him. So examine yourselves. Consider what you are pursuing because every day of your life you are pursuing something. Every single one of us has something at the top of our hierarchy of desires. So consider what your greatest treasure is and what you would give anything and everything for. What are you living for? Because if it's carnal pleasure, that may come today, but I guarantee you it'll be gone tomorrow, it'll be gone eventually. And that's just the nature of the beast. So I urge you not to forfeit your spiritual birthright for fleeting pleasure. 
If you're living for the sake of whatever gives you pleasure in the moment, you are just a ship out in a storm with no anchor, no rudder, just being tossed about in the fury of the storm, and you're selling your soul for something that may give you a sense of satisfaction today, but it'll be gone one day, if not tomorrow. If that's you, I urge you, I implore you to repent and believe in Christ, to be reconciled unto God by faith, and to start over today to turn to Christ and away from your sin today. But if you have made Christ your greatest treasure, you will find that there is an unsearchable, immense joy and satisfaction that comes from pursuing Him, from living under His authority for His glory. And that is the only treasure that cannot be taken from you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. You are a mighty and awesome God. And there is nothing that escapes your attention. There is nothing that escapes your notice. And we thank you, Lord, that there is no sin that is greater than your ability to forgive. That even the smallest sin deserves wrath, but even the greatest sin can be forgiven for the one who will repent. Thank you for such great mercy. Thank you for such great loving kindness. Lord, we acknowledge before you that left to our own desires and affections and inclinations, none of us, none of us would choose you apart from your grace. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for showing us the glory and the necessity of Christ. And we ask that you would strengthen us for daily living and living in a way that glorifies Christ by pursuing Him as our greatest treasure. We ask these things in His name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.